If you can turn in those blue Psalter hymnals again, they're underneath your seat, they look like this. Uh, if you turn to number 444, it wouldn't be a Reformation conference without singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So we're going to stand and sing all four verses of this hymn that Martin Luther wrote. We sang this tune last night to Psalm 46, and we'll sing it to these words uh, this morning. So let's stand and sing all four verses of A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
give you the opportunity now to hear the follow-up to what we just heard a few minutes ago with Luther under the gospel. So just to finish up where we were quickly, there were these stages. Luther came to uh, his Protestant conviction in stages, and the first stage, as I said, was his, uh, through his lecturing on the Psalms. And as he lectured on the Psalms, he was reading Augustine's uh, comments on the Psalms. And those, uh, those lectures were uh, decisive for his understanding of the Psalms. And as he uh, lectured through them, he realized that the picture of uh, the human condition in the Psalms was not what he'd been taught in university. It wasn't that... Uh, nature and grace are identified and that we're not really that sinful and that if we just do our part uh, that God will be uh, eventually satisfied or that we can cooperate sufficiently with grace unto uh, final salvation. Uh, rather, he saw that the human condition is desperate and that grace is free and sovereign. That's what he saw in Augustine. It was very liberating. And in the providence of God, uh, the lectures on the Psalms uh, under the inspiration or influence of Augustine led him to lectures on Romans. And as I mentioned last time, uh, it was through uh, his lectures on Romans that he, he recovered uh, the biblical doctrine of and the ancient Christian doctrine, the pre-medieval patristic doctrine of imputation. Some of the second century fathers actually had spoken uh, this way, even though, as I say, for the reasons I explained last night, that idea had come to be uh, lost and replaced with the notion of uh, grace as a kind of medicine, right, an injection with which we are infused and with which we must uh, cooperate. And he got to Romans 4.3, and he's reading the, the Vulgate, and I won't, I won't uh, read that for you, but it, it says, as you know, Abraham believed God, and it was Reputed is what the Vulgate says. Reputed unto him for righteousness. Some scholars, one in particular, has argued that uh, it was through Erasmus' New Testament uh, that uh, where Erasmus changed, changed reputed there in his Latin Testament uh, to imputed, that made all the difference. And my studies uh, show something else. Uh, the, the meaning of reputed and imputed in Latin are identical and uh, even after this period, you see Protestant writers using reputed in place of imputed. So I don't think that, that holds up. But it was Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God, and it was reputed to him for righteousness. And he realized that it wasn't Abraham's best efforts that were reputed to him or imputed to him for righteousness. It was Christ's righteousness. Right. The, in other words, righteousness was not something that was being wrought in him for salvation, but it was being, uh, it had been once for all accomplished for him for salvation and for justification. And it was credited to him. It was imputed to him. And Abraham received that through faith. Now, he hadn't quite yet, in, in this period, 1515, 1516, as he's lecturing in that acad academic year on Romans, he hadn't quite figured out what faith here means. That wouldn't happen yet but he was on his way. So the second piece of the, uh, of the puzzle is the biblical doctrine of imputation of Christ's righteousness. 
So the first was original sin or depravity, what we call the doctrine of total depravity, and divine sovereignty, unconditional, eternal grace, electing grace, sovereign, unconditional grace. So those are the first two pieces of the puzzle. And of course, as he lectured through Romans, he saw what, of course, he had found in the Psalms, that God elects whom he will unconditionally from all eternity. Jacob ever loved, Esau have I hated before either of them had done anything good or bad, in order that the uh, election of God might stand. Um, the third part of the breakthrough was his recovery of the biblical doctrine of faith. And this, this is the turning point, as you heard in his own explanation. And it happened uh, through his lectures in Galatians uh, and uh, uh, so we're talking about the period 1516 to 1519. He lectured through Galatians from uh, September of 1516 through March of 17. And then he lectured through Hebrews from March of 17 through March of 18. And then he came back to the Psalms again in 19. And as he, met, he himself mentioned, it's in the, through the course of the, these lectures that he came to see what Romans 1 means when it says, for the righteousness or the justice of God he would have he would have seen in his, in his Latin Bible, the justice of God is revealed in it, uh, ex fide in fidem, from faith unto faith. Uh, as, as it is written, the, the just for the just shall live or will live by faith. And what happened in this period, as I suggested before, uh, is that he came to see through these lectures and uh, in uh, Galatians, and Hebrews, and then finally the Psalms again, short course of lectures, that faith is not uh, principally a virtue which is wrought within us. The church had come to talk about the, the cardinal virtues from 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And these cardinal virtues, the creation of a, of a disposition within ourselves. Uh, the church had come to say that faith doesn't produce Right? They, she changed Paul's teaching in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul says that faith works through love. And the church came to say, well, it's better to say faith is formed by love. Uh, and uh, Bob Godfrey did a really, I don't normally uh, praise him in public, um, but he did a very nice essay in a volume that you can get electronically now. It's out of print. You probably get it used somewhere. Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry. And there's an essay in there on the difference between uh, the medieval view of faith as formed by love as opposed to faith working through love. And what the church had come to say is that as you cooperate with grace and as these virtues are formed in you and as you do your part, right, you are helping to bring faith into existence. Your doing, your working, your cooperating is making faith what it is. So faith does what it does, saves, because it is what it is, and it is what it is because you do what you do. And it was a, it was a devilishly brilliant scheme because it makes perfect sense to the natural man. Of course we have to do our part. Ask your unbelieving neighbor. I assume there are, are, are 10 or 12 in London. Right? <laughs> Pastor Gordon says this is the city shining on a hill and everyone's in church here. But 
I have lots of unbelieving neighbors where I am, and if I ask them, and even some of my professing neighbors, if you were to die tonight and find yourself standing, as Dr. Kennedy used to say, face to face with God, and he should ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven? Most of the time, people have told me in my experience as a pastor going door to door, knocking on doors and standing in parking lots and preaching and handing out flyers and the like, well, I've been a pretty good person. And I think I've, I think I've, I think I've done good things, and I think the good things outweigh the bad things. That's our natural inclinations. My colleague, Mike Horton, likes to say we're wired for works because we were created to fulfill a covenant of works in the garden before the fall. We were made right in righteousness and true holiness, that we could do these things, we could accomplish these things. But now, of course, after the fall, we're not able, but the medieval church had downplayed the effects of the fall. So Luther, one way to summarize what Luther learned is that faith is not a virtue in salvation so much as it is an empty hand. Faith is not a virtue that we're presenting to God as if we filled up a, 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 right, a, a jug of milk, right? We've milked and milked and milked, and we filled this up and we presented, here it is. It's almost full, Lord. No, Luther realized that the teaching of Scripture is that our, fa- our hands are empty and that the only thing we come in, uh, with in, in these hands is Christ. These, these, faith is an empty hand that lays hold of Christ, and what makes faith powerful is not our sanctification, it's not our obedience, it's Christ and his obedience for us. Mr. Murray, one of our predecessors in the seminary, used to talk about faith as, as the adequate instrument. It doesn't have much of a ring to it, but it's true. Maybe it sounds better if you say it in a Scots brogue. It's the adequate instrument. See, that sounds better. It sounds much more impressive now. But he was right. Faith is sufficient only because it looks to Christ. And this is what Luther learned. It lays hold of Christ. And he begins to express this in his, in one of my favorite uh, Luther bits, if you will, pieces of, of, uh, of uh, you know, Luther's work in the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, uh, he proposed several theses, and one of them was, through no preparation, no disposition is what he says, will you be worthy, nor through any work will you be fitted for the sacrament of penance, but through faith alone. You can hear in 1518, he's beginning to get what faith is in salvation. This is, he says, uh, because only faith in the word of Christ justifies, makes alive, makes worthy, and prepares. Without faith, all other attempts are strivings of presumption or despair. But he who does not live on the basis of his disposition, but on the, uh, on the basis of faith. You hear? He's, he's moving away. It's not now what's being formed in us. It's what Christ has done for us, and faith lays hold of that. He's moving away from this whole system of grace and cooperation with grace. There are two other theses there that I'll read for you just for fun. We'll come back to them, and so I don't have to come, uh, do them again. A theology of glory, he says, calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls it what it actually is. Remember last night I said, if you were here, that one of the great debates of, of the period that we covered from 1,000 to 1,500 is, how do we relate names and things? And Luther says, if you have a theology of the cross rather than a theology of accomplishment, you know how to relate names to things. That's what he just said in his own way. It's absolutely brilliant. I've been, I've been lecturing on, on these two theses since 1995. 
and I'm still amazed by them every time I read them. That, uh, the second one he, he gave uh, says, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. Faith trusts what God says, not what we see. We live by faith, by trust, not by sight, is what he's saying. Uh, and then uh, after the Leipzig disputation in uh, late June and through mid-July, 1519, uh, and then by the time he published, or uh, by the time he had gone through uh, Galatians and, the, and then the Psalms again, he's working with his Protestant doctrine of, of faith. Well, there's, uh, there's more to be said about the period uh, up to 19, but, but time is against us, so I'm going to uh, move on. And, uh, and, th and think now with you about Luther under the gospel. So these two headings that I chose for the these two halves, if you will, of Luther's life, and we're certainly not going to cover all of Luther's life this morning, um, are really a, a, ref a reflection on a crucial distinction that Luther recovered. You remember I told you earlier that for the medieval church and even for the early Christian church, the patristic church, uh, we had come to talk about the Bible as if it were all law, and there were reasons for that. Not so much because of Scripture itself, although there are ways in which it was Scripture itself, but it was because of a reaction to some of the challenges that we were facing. We were facing radical, uh, dualistic challenges of various kinds, a spirit-matter dualism, uh, but also an Old Testament-New Testament dualism. So the, 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 uh, the, the heretics, Gnostics and the Marcionites and others, talked about an Old Testament God as if he were not really God at all, he, a creator God, uh, yes, but he's a demiurge, he's not the real God, he's a mean God, he's an arbitrary God, he's a capricious God, and if you think about it, they really sounded a lot like a lot of modern theology. A lot of contemporary evangelical uh, talk sounds that way, and a lot of uh, liberal talk about God since the, at least the 19th century has sounded a lot that way. Um, and so there's nothing, nothing new under the sun. And so the early church responded by emphasizing the unity of the faith, the unity of scripture, the unity of salvation, and they, and they designated that or explained that or articulated that by speaking about the old law and the new law. But the, the consequence of speaking that way was to make all of scripture one thing, to make all of scripture one thing. By the time Luther uh, inherited that, uh, uh, it was difficult to, to find or hear the good news. And one of the breakthroughs, as we'll come to in a minute, that Luther had, that was, by the way, adopted by all the Protestants, was this distinction between law and gospel. All right, and I'll come back and explain what that means in a minute. One of the, uh, the first breakthrough, then, we should uh, talk about under, the, under Luther, under the gospel, was his discovery or recovery of sola scriptura. Again, in the early church, there's not much question that the scriptures are the sole, final, ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. There's not a shred of evidence in the second century for a papacy. I want you to know that. Again, I don't want you to, to think, well, you know, probably there always was a pope and, they, and, and the Roman Catholics count popes, and they start with Peter, and then they go to Linus, and then they go to Clement, and so forth. Uh, nonsense. Read the second century, right? Just sit down and read. It's all, most, a lot of it's in English, and there's nobody talking about Peter as pope. Nobody anywhere talking about Peter as pope. 
It's a complete fabrication. Nobody even has any kind of papal authority until Gregory I, and he had it, sort of. He's beginning to exercise it, beginning to do things that popes do. But he, even he said, if anybody declares himself to be the universal vicar of Christ on the earth, that's a mark that he's antichrist. It's not the Leo I in the ninth century that you're really looking at somebody who's actually functioning like a pope, who's being regarded as a pope by other people. In the 4th and 5th century, the North African bishops used to say to the, uh, and even in the 3rd century, the North African bishops used to say to the bishop in Rome, go pound sand. Well, that's, a, that's a loose translation, but it's in the Latin. <laughs> so again, I don't, I don't want you to understand uh, that, that the Reformation is some sort of radical break from all of history. It was a recovery of ancient Christianity. Reformation Christianity was, for the most part, a recovery of ancient Christianity. Right? We're, not, uh, we're not revolutionaries. The Anabaptists were revolutionaries. They were the revolutionaries. We were not revolutionaries. All right, so uh, where did Sola Scriptura, from where did Sola Scriptura come? Well, that would take a whole conference in and of itself. Wycliffe was moving in this direction in some ways, but uh, Luther um, didn't really uh, arrive there until March of 1521. Probably um, in 1519 he was being pushed to it by the, the discussion, the debate at Leipzig. But we see in March of 1521 in a, in a letter or in his, sorry, in his defense of the articles, and then you, if you look at his correspondence from this period, you see some of the same things. He says um, in his defense of the articles, they accuse uh, me of claiming that I alone am everybody's teacher. My answer is that I have not done this since I am always inclined to crawl into a corner. But my enemies have dragged me out into the open through cunning and force uh, to win glory and honor at my expense. Now that the game is going against them, they consider me guilty of vain glory. And even if that were true, and I had set myself up all alone, uh, that would be no excuse for their conduct. Who knows? God may have called me and raised me up uh, to be everybody's teacher. They ought to be afraid, lest they despise God in me. Everyone indeed knows that at times they have erred, speaking about popes and councils. Therefore, I am ready to trust them only when they give me evidence for their opinions from Scripture. Luther was not a radical. Luther wasn't saying, I alone am the authority and I am in my, in my closet by myself reading the Bible. He was reading the Bible with the church. This is really important. He was reading the Bible with the church, with the tradition, with the creeds, with the broader church, but he was norming every claim by the scriptures because he believed, he came to believe that the scriptures are not only sufficient, but they are clear. They're not only sufficient for the Christian faith and the Christian life and for Christian worship, but they are clear, they are sufficiently clear. We call that perspicuity. Unless they give me evidence for their opinion from scripture, which has never erred. Luther believed in the inerrancy of scripture, the infallibility of scripture. This, right, the church is not infallible. The church has erred, popes err, councils err. Scripture never errs. This, St. Paul bids me to do uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, where he says, test everything, hold fast what is good. The test is scripture implicitly there. 
St. Augustine writes to St. Jerome to the same effect, I have learned to do only uh, those books that are called the Holy Scriptures, the honor of believing firmly that none of their writers have ever erred. Interesting how he goes to the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? Popes and councils do err. All others I so read as not to hold what they say to be truth unless they prove it to me by Holy Scripture or clear reason. Holy Scripture must necessarily be clearer, simpler, more reliable than any other writings, especially since all teachers verify their own statements through the Scriptures as clearer and more reliable writings. This is Luther. And desire their own writings to be confirmed and explained by them. But nobody can ever substantiate an obscure saying by one that is more obscure. Notice how he's arguing here. If you have a difficulty, you go to Scripture to resolve the difficulty because Scripture is, is naturally, in its essence, clearer than the opinions of theologians and councils and churches and popes. March 1521. What, he's only a month away from the dying of Worms. He's already achieved sola scriptura. Therefore, necessity forces us to run to the Bible with the writings of all teachers and to obtain there a verdict and judgment upon them. Scripture is not only inerrant, it's the final authority. Right? This is the essence of sola scriptura. It's not I in my closet by myself. It's the church reading the scripture together, but the scripture norms the church. The medieval church had turned the relationship pyramid on its head so that the church was said to give birth to Scripture. The church came to think that she had an unwritten apostolic uh, tradition. Basil of Caesarea claimed as much in about 370 AD. The church has an unwritten apostolic tradition. And the great thing about an unwritten apostolic tradition is you can never verify it because it's unwritten. Why do you do that? Well, it's the unwritten apostolic tradition. How are you going to check that? Who's to know? It's unwritten. It is whatever she says it is. It's a beautiful thing. You ought to try that with your kids. Why are you doing that? I have an unwritten rule. <laughs> you know, watch their eyes start to spin. So try to figure that out. How are they going to get around an unwritten rule? Scripture alone, he says, now listen to this, is the true Lord and master of all writings and doctrine on earth. If that is not granted, what is Scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. 1521. So the Reformation process was a long process, a difficult process, and it took from 1513 to 1521 for Luther. And really, if you, if you continue to read stuff that he's writing in 1522 and 1523, he still continues to say some odd things that don't exactly fit necessarily with what he's saying in this period. You say, well, how can that be? Well, have you ever tried overturning a thousand years of confusion by yourself? It takes a little while. We're still figuring stuff out. We're still in the process of, of, I like to say, recovering the Reformed Confession. And we've had the Belgian Confession since 1561, but we lose track of it. How hard is it for us to recover our confession? 
How challenging is it for us to hold on to what the Heidelberg actually says or what the canons actually say, right? And we have them in our language. We have the Bible in our own language and we get confused and we get turned around and we get lost like I was yesterday at SeaTac, going round and round looking for the, the rental car sign. One sign, one place. Don't miss it. Look up. It's, it's high. <laughs> the tram was fun, but time was against me. <laughs> Scripture is clear. So you ask me, why did it take eight years? No, and my response is, how is it possible that he was able to do all of this between 1513 and 1521 when nobody, he had nobody to work from? It's extraordinary. One monk in Wittenberg pulls together all of these pieces. It's not how did it take eight years, it's how did he accomplish it. It's amazing. So finally, of course, you know it in, in April of 1521 at the Diet of Worms, he, he appears to a, a, a hero's welcome. He, he uh, takes up residence across the, across the street from the I Imperial uh, Hall and uh, uh, comes under, uh, under safe travel, right? And finally, uh, he's, uh, they, they put him up across the street and made him wait as a tactic, probably, made him sweat. Uh, it's one thing to achieve these things and to write papers, and now he has to articulate them in front of God and the church and the authorities of this world who can dispatch him with ease to the flames. And uh, he arrives uh, with great fanfare into the imperial hall in the center of which stood a table with his books and he was asked if they were really his and if he was ready to recant. And Luther, the great hero, nervously asked for more time. <laughs> and he was given a day to think. And again, they put him on ice. He went back across the street and into his room and, and again late, the late in the afternoon, about four o'clock the next day, he was brought again into the imperial uh, chamber and uh, this time he reverted to his academic training. He was a scholar and he began to debate and he was asked if the books were his and, and uh, he did what he'd learned in university. Uh, the, the church was asking him, uh, we want to deal with universals, are these all yours, are these all one? and he began to appeal to particulars. He went back to his nominalist training. Well, yes, I wrote them, but this is about this, and this is about that, and, and all of the, and he was probably stalling for time. And the inquisitor, as it were, in this instance, John Eck, the imperial theologian, cut him short, demanded that he answer candidly and without horns. In other words, without on the one hand and on the other hand. We don't want to hear any of that. Luther responded, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. This is again one of my favorite pieces. That's a nice bit. Horns referring to dialectic on the one hand and on the other hand, but also without teeth. I'm done fighting. If you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. He didn't uh, probably say, here I stand 
I can do no other. He should have, and the later people wrote that in, made it a part of the speech. But this will do. This will do. This is, uh, because here I stand, ultimately, is more about Luther, and Luther's testimony in which he put his hand, his life in the hands of God. Have you, have you ever roasted a chicken? Some beef, some pork? You know what that sounds like? You know how that goes? Now imagine they, they lash you to a stake and there's sticks at your feet and they light the sticks and you are the, you are the roast. It's no small thing. Now heaven's a glorious thing, but getting there that way is miserable. And that's exactly what he wagered when he stood up and said, here, this is, this is where I stand. I stand on scripture. My conscience, and it's not about his conscience, it's about the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything that's contrary to scripture. For it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience as framed by, formed by, controlled by, normed by Scripture. I won't go against the Word of God. That's sola scriptura. That's what it means. That's what we say in Belgic Confession, chapter 7. Read Belgic 7 very carefully. That's what we say in the Westminster Confession. That's what we say in all of our confessions. Because he was so committed to Scripture now, after, after he left Worms, he, uh, he was a little naughty, and he stopped, and he preached several places, and he kind of delayed, and uh, he, was gra- he was not supposed to be doing that. Uh, and uh, at uh, one point, he w- was um, on May, so he, le- he left on April 26th, and on uh, 4 May, his entourage was stopped by about four or five ar- armed horsemen, and he, he must have thought, well, this is it now they've decided to get me. Because you, you, you have to understand, the remarkable thing is, and, and ask yourself this, how is it possible that Luther had not been assassinated? The church had been dispatching people like Luther literally for most of a thousand years. And, and he's still alive. And he thought, well, this is it. I've had my say, and, and now, they've, now they've got me, and I'm, and I'm going to be killed. Well, as it turns out, uh, the the, uh, the Duke sent, um, or the Elector, sorry, sent uh, his uh, guards and they kidnapped him and they took him to the castle Wartburg near Eisenach. Uh, and he stayed there except for one brief trip back home to uh, Wittenberg. He stayed there for 10 months. It was a period of great productivity where he was meditating on scripture, writing on scripture, uh, and he stayed there uh, under an assumed name. He let his hair grow out. He let the, the mona- I have a, now a natural monastic tonsure, but, but he, he shaved the crown of his head and, and he let his hair grow out, his beard grow out, uh, and he called himself uh, Junker, Junker Jorg. And uh, he's hiding. He described this period as my Patmos. He said that he was li- living in the kingdom of the birds. In an, in, uh, in an exile, he, he experienced, a, a, again, a period of tremendous temptation and assaults from Satan. 
Uh, it, it's almost certainly a legend. He probably didn't throw an inkwell at the devil, but if you go to the Wartburg, uh, they will point to a spot. Is it still there, Bob? Yeah, they touched that up in the 19th century. Everything in that room has been, uh, amazingly, Protestants have taken relics out of that room, and so everything in the room is, is not authentic, except for the, um, the oven by which they heated the place up, because I don't think anybody wants to take that thing. It probably weighs a ton. So uh, American tourists are not going to grab that and take it with them. Uh, but he did feel like the devil was rattling around trying to harass him, uh, which is funny. He thought the devil was in the attic banging around. Uh, uh, so Luther is not a, a modern guy. He, I mean, he believes in these things, right? If I say the devil's rattling around, you think, ah, he's probably off his meds. And you think that way because you're modern people. But Luther's not a modern man. He believes in angels and the devil. These are real, these are realities to him. So it was, a period, it was a period of productivity. It was also a period of struggle. He wrote commentaries on Psalm 68. Right? I won't sing Psalm 68. Maybe Bob will. Right? But you know Psalm, some of you know Psalm 68. God shall arise and by his mind. Right? So he's writing on Psalm 68. Why? It's an imprecatory psalm against his, his enemies. And on uh, Psalm 22 and Psalm 37, he wrote against the mass and a number of other things against one of my favorite titles, against the idol at Hala. Um, I actually have a similar treatise that I, I wrote by hand when I was in Germany after see, seeing the, the, uh, Ober, uh, the passion play, the passion spiel at Oberammergau. I, wrote a, I sat down uh, and wrote a thing. I've never done anything with it, but maybe someday. Against the idol at Oberammergau. His chief and greatest labor, however, in this period was his translation of the Greek uh, New Testament, which he did in 11 weeks. Yeah. When I was in seminary, just to give you a, a sense, uh, I, I was able to translate First and Second Peter one summer, uh, and it took me all, all summer to do First and Second Peter. Uh, Luther translated the entire New Testament in 11 weeks from, from uh, Greek into German. Now, not the first German translation, but this was a, a tremendous a piece of work. It was very important. Uh, he made use of the latest scholarship and uh, he made, in his translation, made clear the differences I was saying between law and gospel and on the nature of justification. So he added the word alone to his translation in Romans 3.28, for which he was savaged by his Roman Catholic critics. You ought to read his defense of translation and how to translate. People get all wound up about which translation is the most accurate. And Luther addressed this uh, in, his in his defense of his uh, translation and, and his little treatise on translating. It would be good for us to read that again. His argument was essentially that of what has come to be known as dynamic equivalence today. And he said he had to do it in order to make the text clear for his readers. He defended the addition of alone by saying, and I'm quoting, if your papist makes much useless fuss about the word sola, or alone, tell him at once, Dr. Martin Luther will have it so, and says that papist and donkey are one thing. <laughs> if you want to talk about universals, I'll give you. I got, all right, it's like he, my grandfather is from Brooklyn. I got your universal right here. <laughs> seek volo, seek ubeo, sit pro rationi voluntas. This I will, this I command. It will be so because I will it to be so. For we will not be pupils and followers of the papists, but their masters and judges. Why are we masters and judges? How are we masters and judges of the papists? 
Because we have the scriptures. We have the scriptures. Are they doctors? So am I. Are they learned? So am I. Are they preachers? So am I. Are they theologians? So am I. Are they philosophers? So am I. Are they writers of books? So am I. And I shall further boast, I can expound psalms and prophets which they cannot. I can translate which they cannot. That was true. He could read Greek, and they could not. It would be quite a while before, except for Erasmus, many of the papists were able to read Greek well enough to keep up with Luther. We really owned the field for about 100 years. About 100 years from now, it's going to get a little more complicated. That would be a whole other conference. Therefore, the word alone shall remain in my New Testament. Though all pope donkeys should get furious and foolish, they shall not turn it out. I'm doing the translation. I'm reading Greek. I'm getting it into German. I stand on the word of God, he's saying. It is, he made marginal notes in his translation. Uh, uh, translation, and these were very influential. They emphasized the distinction between law and gospel, that law is one principle and the gospel is another principle, right? Uh, we'll, come, we'll come back to that. He, he emphasized uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And after uh, some years, 1534, the entire German Bible was finally uh, finished. Well, I've been mentioning law and gospel, and that's where I started the, uh, at the um, beginning, you see this already in his lectures on the Psalms. You can see him wrestling with it. He's not getting it right, but he knows there's something wrong with what he learned. And, he ha and as he was lecturing on the Psalms, right, in 1513, 1514, um, he's struggling. He's trying to articulate what, uh, something that he, he doesn't yet have the categories. Right? Have you ever had that problem? I, I, I'm, I'm at the age now where I have it all the time. I can't remember people's names, and I, can't, I know there was something that I wanted to say that flashed across my brain, but it's gone now, and, and it won't come back for three or four hours when it's useless. <coughs> I send people random emails, you know, with one or two words. These were the words I was trying, and then expecting them to remember the context. He's still using the old law, new law categories as he's working through the Psalms, but, you, but he's, he's trying to, to find another way to put things. And it's hard to say exactly uh, where and when he finally realized the distinction between law and gospel. He never really says. And I haven't uh, nailed it down with precision, but somewhere in 1518, 1519, so that Luther said that when it was through his second course of lectures on the Psalms that he, everything came together. He, he focuses on faith, but his, his distinction between law and gospel was a part of that breakthrough. And, he, uh, in 15, and certainly by 1521, it's, it's present and, and very clear in 1525. He would later say this difference between law and gospel is the height of knowledge in Christendom. This difference between law and gospel is the height of knowledge in Christendom. There are places in the Reformed world, Reformed or Presbyterian world, where this, this dictum is not accepted. I, get, I regularly get called a Lutheran for distinguishing law and gospel, and, and my response is, of course I'm a Lutheran. And so was Calvin, and so was Olivianus, and so were the Reformed churches. Of course we are. 
we're Protestants. Every person and all persons who assume or glory in the name of Christian should know and be able to state this difference. If this ability is lacking, one cannot tell a Christian from a heathen or a Jew. And it's true. My, one of my professors, Dr. Bergsma, used to say, if your sermon could be preached without revision in a synagogue or a mosque, you failed. If your sermon could be preached in a synagogue or a mosque without revision, you failed. Of such supreme importance is this distinction. This is why St. Paul so strongly insists on a clean-cut and proper distinction of these two doctrines, law and gospel. He said that in his sermons on Galatians in 1532. This is a sermon that he's preaching to God's people. The law is the word, he said, in which God uh, teaches and tells us what we are to do and not to do, as in the Ten Commandments. The other word of God is not law or commandment, nor does it require anything of us, but after the first word, that of the law, has done its work, uh, and, and distressful misery and poverty have been produced in the heart, God comes and offers his lovely living word, promises, and pledges and obligates himself to give grace and help that we may get out of this misery. Does that sound familiar at all? What three things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I'm redeemed from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such redemption. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. The structure of the Heidelberg Catechism is law, gospel, and grateful obedience or sanctification. It's fundamental to our faith. Do you know that the Heidelberg Catechism quotes Luther verbatim? Caspar Olivianus says that the entire uh, book of Romans and his commentary on Romans said the entire book of Romans was about nothing else except the distinction between law and gospel. Who knew the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism were Lutherans? <laughs> Zacharias or Sinus? Zacharias Ursinus, who actually wrote probably 70% of the Heidelberg Catechism, said that the covenant of works before the fall was law and the covenant of grace is gospel. He taught the distinction repeatedly. Calvin repeatedly, again and again, taught the distinction between law and gospel. William Perkins said, if we don't distinguish between law and gospel, you can't even begin to preach a passage. How are you going to know what to do with a passage until you've determined how it relates to law or gospel. Theodore Beza said that the chief corruption in Christendom, he said, is the failure to distinguish between law and gospel. Who knew all those guys were secretly Lutherans corrupting the Reformed faith? Or maybe we just have a, a thoughtless definition. No, we get out of the misery by the gospel. Not only, our sins are not only forgiven, he says, but, but also blotted out. And uh, that love and delight uh, to fulfill the law may be given beside guilt, grace, and gratitude. See, this divine promise of his grace and of the forgiveness of his is properly called the gospel. And I say again, and yet again, you should never understand the gospel to mean anything 
but the divine promise of his grace and forgiveness of sin. This is why, hitherto, St. Paul's epistles were not understood and cannot be understood by our adversaries even now. They do not know what law and gospel really are, for they consider Christ a legislator and the gospel nothing but the teaching of new laws. This is nothing else but locking up the gospel and obscuring everything. For gospel is Greek and means good news, because in it is proclaimed the saving doctrine of life, of, divine, of the divine promise and grace and the forgiveness of sins uh, are offered. Therefore, works do not belong to the gospel, for it is not laws but faith alone, because it is nothing whatever but the promise and offer of divine grace. He then who believes the gospel receives grace and the Holy Spirit, thereby the heart becomes glad and joyful in God. And then, and now listen to this, and then keeps the law gladly and freely. Must be a textual interpolation. No. We learn this from Luther. When we say guilt, grace, and gratitude, we're just imitating Luther. We're quoting Luther. Our faith on this is Luther's faith. If you don't believe me, ask Bob. He was there. <laughs> he was still in short pants, but he can verify that it's all true. Calvin never, I, I just, in the process of publishing a paper on this, just spent a month researching Calvin and Luther in the original text on this very question, searching Calvin to find where he criticizes Luther on these. He doesn't do it. You know what Calvin called Luther? He called him an apostle. He called him my father. He criticizes Luther, but never on this, never on justification, never on sola fide, never on, even on the doctrine of sanctification. A lot of American reformed, North American, forgive me, we're really close to Canada, uh, I, I understand. Uh, lots of North American Reformed people think that Luther is one thing and Calvin is another. It's just not true. Are there differences? Yeah, there are real differences. But they aren't the differences that we think. Uh, if I tell you what the real differences are, you'll get mad at me and you won't come back for the later sessions. I'll let Bob tell you what the real differences are. <laughs> But this, and I, I have to quit here, this, this is essential, this distinction between law and gospel. And he goes on and on about it at great length. If you read the bondage of the will, or the bound will, a better translation, 1525, Luther thought maybe his greatest work, one that the Lutherans don't like to read. If you, you're, you remember the, the Dracula movies, right? If you hold up a cross, Dracula goes, right? If you hold up bondage of the will, Lutherans go, <laughs> They don't read it. I've talked to Luther, senior Lutheran scholars, and they said, well, yeah, but in section such and such of De Cero, right, Luther says, and, and, and the guy says to me, oh, we don't read that. In 1580, there was a debate between Luther, or between uh, Lutherans and the Reformed, and Beza representing the Reformed, when they got to the question of election and reprobation, Luther stood up and he held up his copy of Bondage of the Will, and he said, we stand with Luther. And the Lutherans stood up and said, next. <laughs> But the, at the heart of Luther's treatise on the bound will is this distinction between law and gospel. What Erasmus fundamentally misunderstood, he said, was the distinction 
between law and gospel. So I'll let you, I have, yeah, now this is really long. I had, I had a whole huge section that we won't go into, but you just read Bondage of the Will, and you'll see it for yourself. It's not hard. The first two-thirds, I'll tell you how to read it. First two-thirds, you can kind of skim, and the last third is where he kind of lays out his own case. So you can kind of skim, but don't miss the section where he goes after, uh, where he goes after uh, Erasmus on Ezekiel and the free offer of the gospel and the, and the distinction between the law and the gospel. Well, the rest of, of Luther's teaching really is in some ways an elaboration of these great themes that we've already laid out, right? Free grace, human depravity and free grace imputation of Christ's righteousness that was accomplished for us, outside of us, he always said to, to everyone who will listen, you need to learn to say, for me, right? Well, here, oh, here's, this is easy. One way to distinguish between the medieval church and the Protestants is, the, is between two prepositions. The medieval preposition is in me, in. The medieval preposition is in. The Protestant preposition is for. We start with for me. Christ is for me, for us, and he's in us because he was for us. He's in us because he was for us, and we are in him because he was for us. The medieval said he is ultimately maybe for us to the degree that he's in us. And out of that, for Luther, flows the Christian life. And that's where I want to leave uh, th this uh, section. Luther had a robust vision of the Christian life, and it's much misunderstood. He gets caricatured by people who've never read him, who can't quote him, don't know how to cite him. And, and I've seen, I'm thinking of a particular Presbyterian scholar whose name, whom I won't name to preserve his reputation, who published this in a book, quotes a liberal German Lutheran. It's like... It's like quoting a liberal American Presbyterian to prove what Presbyterians believe, quotes a, a liberal antinomian German Lutheran to prove that Luther was an antinomian. It's just, a, it's just criminal is what it is. Uh, read, uh, children, brothers and sisters, read Luther for yourself. It will do you good. Read the large catechism for yourself. You won't agree with everything. You probably shouldn't, but you will be edified. And one of the things that you'll see when you read it is that Luther teaches and taught about the Christian life that with respect to the penalties of the law, right, those are no longer in effect. But the law is still the norm of the Christian life. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Luther gave us the word antinomianism. Do you know that? Not because he was in favor of it, but because he was opposed to it. And he opposed it all of his Protestant life. He vigorously opposed antinomianism, and he opposed the, the uh, Anabaptists. For Luther, Christ has set us free to render cheerful obedience out of gratitude. For Luther, the Spirit produces obedience in us by his grace. And this is, uh, I'll leave you with this quote. That is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith it is that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. Notice not my merits, Christ's merits for me. The Spirit, in turn, renders the heart glad and free as the law demands. Then good works proceed from faith itself. This is what Paul means in chapter 3, when after he has thrown out the works of the law, this is Romans, 
He sounds as, as if he wants to abolish the law by faith. No, he says, we uphold the law through faith. That is, we fulfill it through faith. Faith, he says, is a work of God in us which uh, he changes us, in which he changes us, and brings us to uh, birth anew from God. It kills the old Adam. It makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with us. What a living, creative, and active, powerful thing faith is. It is impossible that faith should ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. He gropes and searches about him for faith and good works, but doesn't know what faith or good works are. Even so, he chatters on with a great many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through it, a person will do good to everyone without coercion. Willingly and happily, he will serve everyone and suffer everything for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace. It is as impossible to separate works from faith as burning and shining from fire. This very language got quoted by the Reformed writers again and again and again. Therefore, be on guard against your own false ideas and against the chatterers who think they are clever enough to make judgments about faith and good works, but who are in reality the biggest fools. They ask God to work faith in you, or, sorry, ask God to work faith in you. Otherwise, you will remain eternally without, no matter uh, what you try to do or fabricate.